Well, good evening. It is really good to uh, be with you all uh, this evening. I'm so used to saying this morning. It's been a while since I've had an evening service. Um, At my old church, we did, uh, but now we don't right now. But uh, just a reminder of who I am. If if I've not met you, I really look forward to to meeting you. But I'm Eric Whitley, the RUF Campus Minister, Reformed University Fellowship Campus Minister uh, at uh, at IU. And uh, if you don't know anything about RUF, it is the denominational campus ministry arm of the Presbyterian Church. Church in America, the PCA, uh, where our, our desire is to help students learn to love Jesus for a lifetime. That's the simplest way to describe what we want to do, and it very much is the church going to campus. And so one of the things, if you're not familiar with RUF that's unique, is, uh, is that we send ordained uh, men to campus to be pastors. And, so, and that's uh, my role there, which I am so grateful to do. And that runs the gamut in terms of what our students look like, all the way from covenant kids, including some of your own that I perhaps have had or will have, all the way to, to non-Christians as a, as a part of our group. And it's a joy and a privilege uh, to be able to s- uh, seek to, to serve there. Uh, but one of the things that we like to do uh, is, is we like to often posture ourselves to be a place where we seek, uh, allow students to, to seek honest answers to honest questions. That's one of the things that Francis Schaeffer, if you know that name, was known to have said. And I love that because we can open the scriptures and feel unashamed about uh, what it has to say that we're going to do this evening as well, knowing that it has the very answers for life itself. And indeed it does. And so we're going to open uh, Psalm 21, open this evening um, and by the way, another connection to this church, if I don't know you, um, is that uh, I did go here just very, very briefly. I don't know if you remember me or not, um, but towards the end of my senior year of, of college, I was a student here at IU, but I remember going into the Holdeman home and enjoying chili and, uh, and, and, and doing what at that point was called fireside chat. And Adam Neese was around at that point. He and I were involved with the Navigators together, if you know that name at all. Um, but, uh, but it's really good to be back, uh, back here with you, opening God's word this evening. But I wanted to make that quick connection as well for you all. <clears throat> so Psalm 21, our psalm this evening, uh, finds itself paired with the psalm uh, right before it, Psalm 20. They're, they're, uh, they form together what's called a pair of, of royal psalms. And so the focus in terms of context, some of you may know this, Psalm 20 is petitioning the Lord in prayer to give success to the king, uh, that is to King David. And in Psalm 21, uh, the, the attention then, uh, the, then turns to giving thanks to God for actually answering that request on the part of the king. And so it's truly designed, and uh, you, we, we just sang about part of this, it's designed to be a psalm of praise, of joy, of jubilation. But one of the things that I, I like to point out about the psalms, although this may be uh, not as much of an issue for you all considering how much you sing the psalms together, Uh, But uh, one of the challenges that I think facing the Psalms is that if the Psalm is seeking to give thanks for the success of a king, and again, King David here, how do we relate that to our present day? Because if you haven't noticed, David is no longer king. Uh, We're not clearly finding ourselves in a literal battle as he was. And, uh, And then also, there's just the fact that we don't find ourselves situated in a nation state of Israel. And our physical and spiritual well-being is not somehow inextricably attached to the success of this king and that physical king. And by the way, we're on this side of the cross. So how in the world do we approach a psalm that can sometimes seem so distant? What do we do with this? How does it actually shape us? What does it do for us today 
as Christians and even for those of us in this room who may not know the Lord, what do we do with this? It seems so distant sometimes when we read passages of Scripture like this. And that's the question I hope to answer this evening and to explore together. So this is God's word, starting in verse 1 of Psalm 21. O Lord, in your strength the king rejoices, and in your salvation how greatly he exalts. You have given him his heart's desire and not withheld the request of his lips. For you meet him with rich blessings. You set a crown of fine gold upon his head. He asked life of you. You gave it to him, length of days forever and ever. His glory is great through your salvation. Splendor and majesty you bestow on him. For you make him most blessed forever. You have made him glad with the joy of your presence. For the king trusts in the Lord. And through the steadfast love of the Most High, he shall not be moved. Your hand will find out all your enemies. Your right hand will find out those who hate you. You will make them as a blazing oven when you appear. The Lord will swallow them up in his wrath, and fire will consume them. You will destroy their descendants from the earth and their offspring from among the children of man. Though they plan evil against you, though they devise mischief, they will not succeed for you will put them to flight. You will aim at their faces with your bows. Be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. We will sing and praise your power. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord, it stands forever. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for your word, and we do thank you for this psalm. And we ask, God, that you would uh, be with us in this time, as we explore your word together, we ask that you, O Holy Spirit, would be with and among us, working in your people, and cutting at our hearts and bringing us great comfort at the good news of the gospel of Jesus. We pray for this time now and pray that you would bless it. In Christ's name, amen. You know I'm undefeated one-on-one. I don't lose one-on-one. If Michael Jordan played me one-on-one, he would cry. Well, about five years ago, these were the words of a dad of a well-known basketball player in the NBA, and he was boasting about how he could presently beat the one who is thought by many to be the greatest basketball player of all time, Michael Jordan. Now, this was not the first time that this dad had said uh, these kinds of words. Just a few months prior, here's what he said. He said, back in my heyday, I would kill Michael Jordan one-on-one. He cannot stop me one-on-one. He better make every shot because he can't go around me. He's not fast enough. All right. Uh, just, just, a little, just a little clue. Uh, while at North Carolina, Michael Jordan averaged 17.7 points per game, 54% shooting, five rebounds per game, and his time there included one national championship. With the Chicago Bulls in 13 seasons, he averaged 31.5 points per game, over 50% shooting, six rebounds per game, six NBA titles, six NBA final MVP awards, five regular season MVP awards, and he was elected to the NBA Hall of Fame. Okay, I'm done. This dad who was boasting that he could beat him, here here, here are statistics. In one season with the Washington State Cougars, do you all know who that is? I don't know who that is. He averaged 2.2 points per game and just over two rebounds. That's it. That's it, y'all. When we hear something like this, uh, we hear it in the boasting that it is. We can see the false confidence. We can sniff it out, and we laugh, just as you all did chuckle, whether internally or externally, because you understand how comical such a thing is. It's ridiculous, right? But at the same time, 
I actually wonder and I feel like our laughter sometimes in those kinds of situations is a bit of a nervous laughter. Uh, we laugh because we can, know, we can actually be like this too. We laugh because perhaps we wished we had a bit more of that kind of confidence, even just a little bit. Uh, perhaps even some of us find ourselves jealous. I've been in this situation. Jealous at those who seem to exude a high degree of confidence. I think a story like I just shared uh, is merely a caricature of what often exists within our own hearts. That is to say, when it comes to facing challenges in this life, we want to be the one who gets the victory. We want to be the one, after we find success, that we want the notoriety. We value self-reliance and independence, being able to succeed with our own two hands and own two feet. This is the American ideal, is it not? Right? And one that, honestly, many of our churches have embraced wholeheartedly as well. Uh, Because even in our Reformed tradition, so y'all are Reformed, I'm Reformed, while we understand the roots of our sinful, uh, our lives, right, we throw out words like weakness and depravity. But how often is it that we still value any person who works hard and finds success? And that's not to say that those things is necessarily bad, but how quickly it can become an end in and of it themselves, Right? And so we can place such a high value on this kind of thinking of success and of accomplishments that our confidence, what happens, quickly turns to ourselves and our boast in life. Where does it turn? It turns inward, right? Well, a few years ago, this same dad of this uh, star basketball player had the chance to see his own son drafted into the NBA. And he was expected to do well and frankly has. If I, if I mention the name, you'd probably know. Uh, But then, uh, even then, the overconfident boasting of this dad continued, and he placed such enormous pressure on his son right from the beginning. And so a few years ago, he he claimed that his son's place on the team would bring the team back into the spotlight and that they would be in the NBA playoffs that season because of his son. But how how can he claim that? Because what happens if his son's game, like he gets into the NBA, he just falls flat, finds himself in a slump, what does he do? Does it gel with the team? Or worst of all, what if he gets injured? Maybe even career-ending injury. And while many of us don't boast in our abilities to be in the NBA, I'm guessing, we do boast and present this kind of false confidence, and we do it all the time. We do it in our careers. We do it in our relationships. We do it, for those of us who are parents, using our kids with our appearance and our hobbies and what we own, even in our own spirituality, right? I think this is one thing that I see within our own Reformed tradition. We boast and have confidence in what we know theologically and doctrinally, and that's our boast. But what if you lost that job that you worked so hard to get that you were so confident in, or your bank account gets drained from unexpected medical expenses, or your house is flooded, right? I have a uh, a friend whose roommate, college roommate, was one of the ones who lost his entire house in eastern Kentucky. What if you just lost everything at a given moment? And we even twist things so much that our false confidence can also be pride in what we don't have or in what we don't do. Well, here's what I mean by this. Uh, just, just take, for an instance, uh, the way that this can play itself out, even here in Bloomington. We take pride in not shopping at Walmart and shopping at Blooming Foods instead. I'll go to Blooming Foods. Or we take pride in not shopping at Blooming Foods because we want to stick it to all those organic people. I go to Walmart instead. 
Or we take pride in not buying that new car, so we always buy used. Or we take pride in buying that new car, we don't buy used. You get the point, right? We hide behind this kind of false confidence, and there are so many ways that our hearts twist this. Because any tinge of a lack of confidence and trust in our own strength is seen as weakness. And guess what? You and I do not want to look weak to the world, do we? But God sees through all of this. He sees us in all of our boasting, even if it's quiet and internal. And I think in a lot of ways, he looks at us and finds it just as comical as we do with others in the story that I shared. And that's actually what's so helpful about this psalm. Let's connect it to the psalm. Here we have a king, the king of Israel, David, no less, by the way. And where is his boast? The king of David, where is his boast? Verse 1. O Lord, O Yahweh, in your strength the king rejoices, and in your salvation how greatly he exalts. This presents a very different picture for us, does it not? An alternative narrative of proper confidence, and it's not found in us. It's not putting up a front of false confidence. It's actually admitting our weakness and finding our strength in Yahweh and the God of creation. And so as a result, it's not we who are deserving of the praise when we experience success and victory or the good things of life. It's God. And so that's what Psalm 21 encourages us to do is ultimately to give praise to God and to do that by having our eyes opened and our hands out. So you see that there in the handout where we're going to go in this passage. Because Yahweh is the source of our proper confidence, we need our eyes opened to that reality to both face our own lack of, of confidence, of actually having true confidence, and then we need seeing what is true about God, that our boast is only in him. But then we should also have our hands out, proactively seeking true confidence in him. It's not just about knowing it, but it's actually about living life. And so facing the, the reality of what is true, both about ourselves and about God, we're called to act. And so that's where Psalm 21 ultimately takes us, is that it shapes us what to do with our life in this way. So these are the two things we're going to look at briefly. First of all, the psalm encourages us to have eyes opened. And put simply, we need to see our own pride and our eyes opened also to his power. Look at verse 11 with me as it relates to our pride. Though they plan evil against you, though they devise mischief, they will not succeed. Here what we get is a picture of the enemies of the king. The king is likely the you being referred here in verse 11. But it's important to note that an attack on God's chosen king is also an attack against his people and ultimately God himself. And so in contrast to a humble dependency upon Yahweh for strength and power, we also get on the flip side a picture of the human experience devoid of God, which is seeking your own path. Now, it is true that this psalm, and I'm sure many of you all know this, is designed for us to attach ourselves to the experience of King David and the people and not the enemies. But what I want to suggest and why I pointed out this verse is that if we don't first recognize our natural state apart from God, we can't begin to experience what it means to rightly belong to him. And this is where actually uh, the Apostle Paul in Romans fills this out for us and he reminds us of this natural state where he says this, for if while we were enemies we are reconciled by God to the death of his son much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life in other words left to our own we need to actually see that we are in fact enemies of God 
that. Our pride, taking the front seat in life, claiming our own victory and success of life, is turning away from him and being an enemy. And we have a need to see our eyes open to this propensity that all of us have. Because even as followers of Jesus, we have the residue of that kind of enemy posture, do we not? Even if that does not define ultimately who we are. And then that's set in contrast, this human pride, that we can then begin to see, secondly, his power, and we read about this in the passage everywhere. Who wins the battle? We're told that the king will find out the enemy in verse 8, that he will destroy them and they will be put to flight, verse 12. But notice that it is God who in verse 9 will ultimately swallow them up and consume them. Everything that's happening in terms of victory that the king has been given is a result of the power and the work of God. And look even more with the glory and the notoriety of the king of Israel when he conquers. Where does that notoriety and power and glory come from? Look at verse 5 with me. His glory is great through your salvation. Splendor and majesty you bestow on him. Verse 3 as well. You meet him with rich blessings. You set a crown of fine gold upon his head. Do you notice what he's pointing to? He's saying, your glory, king, all this power that you have been granted to victory over the enemies, it comes from me. I did it. And so having confidence in this life means having our eyes opened Yes, to our own uh, pride and self-confidence that is false, but ultimately to his power. To the power and strength of God that we cannot muster on our own. And I think it should stand out to us that it is the king, King David, the one who held so much human strength, power, and leadership, is the one who is leading the way, pointing us to the source of ultimate confidence. He's saying, it's not in me, as powerful as he was. He says it's God. I'll never forget one of the most remarkable funerals that I've been to. And it was back in 2009 during our time in St. Louis. So prior to being here, I spent uh, seven years on staff at a church in St. Louis. And and then during that, uh, before that, I spent time in seminary. And this was actually why I was in seminary during our time there. And there were so many people who loved and knew this man, that Powell Hall. Okay, if you know Powell Hall, it's where the St. Louis Symphony plays, had to be rented out because there were so many people at this funeral. There were several pastors, including my former uh, seminary president, a former pastor of the church, and the current senior pastor. And I actually sang in a choir because just having a vocalist or a small group of musicians at this funeral was not enough. We had this, we had this huge choir of people. Now, undoubtedly, Benjamin Franklin Edwards III was, by all accounts, very successful in life. He was victorious. He grew what was a regional company in A.G. Edwards that he took from his dad in 1967 with an equity capital of $3.5 million, and he made it a national enterprise worth $1.6 billion. Went from 44 offices and 300 financial consultants to almost 700 offices and 7,000 consultants in almost all 50 states. Let's just say the guy did well, right? He did really well. He was victorious in our American dream eyes. But what was remarkable about this funeral that I attended is that Ben seemed to understand, and I didn't even know the guy, was that any victory he had in life or money that he had, he knew was not from his hand, but that it was from God. 
And so he saw his own need to address his own pride and to be confronted with the power and strength of God. And that came out in the funeral. One of the ways, a few of the ways that this came out and the way that he conducted his business affairs were things like this. He answered his own phone. An assistant didn't do it. He personally greeted new employees on their first day. He never laid a single employee off during his time. Not a single one. When other brokerage houses sought to increase their own bottom line through lots of risky debt and less than charitable transactions, he wouldn't do it. And one of my personal, personal favorite anecdotes is this. He had in his office at uh, the, the headquarters of A.G. Edwards in St. Louis a $6 million collection of Chinese porcelain, okay? And it was reported that if a visitor were to, like, you know, bump something and shatter a $2,000 plate or a $25,000 platter, Mr. Edwards was, was wont to say, yeah, I've broken a few myself. It's okay. Why did he do this? He did these things because he knew who he belonged to. He knew that anything that he had been given in life was not his own. And so, yes, while that funeral was a tribute to a man who had lived successfully, it most dramatically pointed to the God who gave him all of that. And so Ben's eyes had been opened to the reality of both his pride and of God's power, and he wanted the rest of the world to see that his success and any confidence that he had in this life did not come from himself. And that was what was so beautiful, is that his boast was not in his stuff, but his boast was in the God who was now lovingly embracing him in heaven. And so, as we transition here, I would simply want to ask this question, is where do your eyes need opening? You see, the interesting thing about pride is that it often can come in two extremes. I don't know if you've ever thought about it this way. You have arrogance and confidence on the one hand, and then you also, I think, have low or no confidence, or perhaps even despair on the other. And I don't know about you, but I often find myself wavering between these two extremes when it comes to the way that I experience confidence. Let me just give you an example of how this played out in my own life. Uh, I played the cello. I was a music major along with our brother Adam Neese. And so I've been playing the cello for over 30 years now. So when I beat out several upperclassmen uh, to win second chair as a freshman in my high school regional orchestra, I felt pretty good about myself. I was like, man, I'm pretty good. Now, there's, of course, nothing wrong with gaining confidence as you learn things, but undoubtedly, like, this confidence was tainted with my own arrogance. But here in IU, when I was in college, you know, the level of playing is a little bit different once you get to college. And I was good. I was fine. But when I failed to get, you know, that fast run of notes in Schumann's cello concerto that I was so desperately trying to perfect down in the practice room, it was so easy to get discouraged, to struggle with confidence, even to let it affect my own sense of worth and of identity. And you see, that's the interesting thing about the way pride itself works, is it hides itself both as an overly confident and arrogant self, but also a self-centering belittling of self as well, right? And that may be some of y'all is more on that end. So what is the area for you? It may not be music, but I will say this is that there's a really good chance that whatever it is, wherever it is that you struggle with this kind of pride, it often, call, it often can be connected to something that God has called you to. So for me, it was music. For you, it could be your work, your vocation. It could be as a spouse. It could be as a friend, as a parent. 
in and around your community and neighborhood, even within these church walls, right? So where do our own eyes need opening to our pride? And seeing a shift that every good thing comes from his hand and power. But merely grasping what's true about us and about God is actually not enough. And that's where the psalm shifts and helps us to see that there's actually a response, that there's a call to action to seeing our eyes gradually opened. And so we may intellectually know, yes, Yahweh is the source of my confidence. We can proclaim it all day along with the Apostles' Creed. But it's a whole other thing to actually have our hands out and actively seeking true confidence from him alone. And that's what I want to suggest that this psalm actually helps shape us into pursuing. Because a true heart change that results in a change, actually has to result in a change of strategy when it comes to finding confidence in this life. You can't just give intellectual assent to it. And so the psalmist brings us to the process of what the king and the people ought to do in the face of battles to gain confidence. And we do that with hands out. That's what we're going to talk about. And we're going to talk about ways in which we do that, that we appeal to him, we accept and trust his blessing and provision, and finally we adore him. So first of all, we appeal. We appeal to God having hands out. Let's read verses 2 and 4. You have given him his heart's desire and have not withheld the request of his lips. In verse 4, he asked life of you. You gave it to him length of days forever and ever. We're reminded here of what the psalmist invited the people to do in joining him in Psalm 20 is to seek our heart's desire from God to make our request known. That is to say, he was inviting them to appeal to him, to name before God our own deficiencies and facing our battles alone. Now, it's worth saying that just because we appeal to God, this does not take away the responsibility and the call that each of us has. Notice that the king, in his appeal, is not somehow giving up his authority and his duty to act. In fact, no, they go right along together. In order to actually act, the king recognizes his finitude. He recognizes his dependence as a creature on his creator. And so that is true for us, that we are to to cry out, to appeal to God, to, to live out a desperation to God and then act, right? It's out of that desperation that we actually then act, But more than that, we also seek with hands out to accept his provision and his blessing. In other words, we're called to a posture of what I call active passivity in trusting God to provide. I hope that's a helpful phrase for you, active passivity, meaning that we are actually called to accept the good things that he desires to give us. Notice in verse 3, the king is met with rich blessings In verse 6, we read, For you make him most blessed forever. You make him glad with the joy of your presence. Joy and blessing, notice, are not found in what the king and the people do. It's not because of what they know. It's not because of any strength that they can muster up on their own. Joy and blessing has to be received, and it comes from the outside. It has to come from outside yourself. And it ultimately comes by being in God's presence. And perhaps most bluntly in this vein, let's read verse 7. Right before that, verse 6, you make him glad with the joy of your presence. Verse 7, for the king trusts in the Lord. And it's through the steadfast love of the Most High that he shall not 
be moved. So how do we experience victory and stability and immovability? It's right there. It ultimately comes in trusting the love of God. This feels probably in many ways like the Sunday school answer, but it's the truth. That when it comes to the battles that we face in life, at home, in the workplace, in our friendships, and facing illness, confronting tragedy, dealing with financial pressures and addictions, we need to face the reality that we cannot do it on our own. And that's why we read here that it's the steadfast love of the Most High that we must trust and be met with. And it's this love, ultimately, friends, and you know this, that that God desired to meet us in our weakness. It's because of this love that he came and he sent his son, the better king than King David and King Jesus. And he came, of course, not to save the righteous but sinners. He came to those who, not shunning the work of a physician, but, but who knew they were sick and needed him. He came to proclaim good news to the poor, liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, those who knew they were oppressed. In other words, in short, he came out of his love to deliver and save and to give confidence among the weakest among us. And that's all of us. And it's after having our eyes opened, confessing, appealing, accepting this gift of grace that finally leads us to give due where due is rightly deserved, and that is to adore the provider of our strength. And that's the way the psalmist ends in verse 13. He says this, Be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. We will sing and praise your power. Let me end with this story. Kara Tippetts, I don't know if anybody knows that name, but Kara Tippetts loved her life. She was the mother of four kids, wife to a pastor husband that was planting a church in Colorado. And after she had moved there, she wanted to uh, describe and share her experiences as a mom and a pastor's wife. And so she started a blog called Mundane Faithfulness. And it became her outlet and a place to experience honesty of of her own brokenness, her own need, and a place to experience God's grace. But things turned pretty quickly interesting for her when she was diagnosed with terminal breast cancer. And so her blog and her own words then became a place where she processed her diagnosis and treatment and where she articulated that heart response to her pain. And she wrote and actually gathered a huge following. She even wrote a book before she passed away. Well, in one entry, two years after her diagnosis, she related the anger that she and her son, her son Lake, were experiencing together and also at each other. He was really frustrated with her constantly being in bed, not being any fun, and he was just angry. And she was frustrated with his grumpiness and certainly angry at her own diagnosis. She recalls this. We were using the edges of our voices and disappointments to try to win at something, but nothing was being won. They were not experiencing victory. After getting home from a quick trip out, she dismissed the other kids out of the van and she invited her son up into the front seat. He shared his anger and pain. She listened. They prayed. They talked. And here's how she recalls that interaction. She said, I'm not disappointed in the anger I met today. No, it's inevitable. It's honest. It is what is true for us today. But I also know there is a story bigger than our anger. 
I know that we can listen to these feelings for a moment, but to hold on to them would be dangerous for us both. And so we sought the words that brought tenderness between us, and they came. My son and I left the van restored, restored in a way that the honest sharing hurts and hard and and pain openly can restore us. Because you see, I couldn't make this hurt better. I could not promise that I'll suddenly become stronger. I could only promise that we would both be carefully kept, even in the midst of crushing disappointments. You all know that I want to make those empty promises for strength and better, but I won't. I will cry with him, I will pray for him, and I will point his pain to the bigger story found in a caring Jesus that is not unaware that my young son is hurting. I don't know if you heard where her confidence lay, but as much as she wanted to give empty promises of of being stronger, that she's going to get better, she didn't do it. Because she understood, probably in a way that many of us Lord willing, may never experience her own lack of deficiency and lack of of strength. And so what does she do? She actually avails herself to the God of power, both for her and for her son, with hands out, actively appealing to him and accepting the provision and and the blessing that his presence, that is to say, God's presence, because she knew that's the only thing that would meet them. The only thing that would provide comfort, the only thing that would bring comfort and peace to both her and her son was the very presence of God. And so it's this confidence that she lived out for the rest of her life. She passed away in March of 2015. She then actually won the battle, did she not? Because she left to be with her Savior, where she's now, guess what, adoring him confidently boasting in his steadfast love, exulting in his strength, singing and praising him for his power. And so my prayer for you, friends, for you, our sister church, is that your eyes and mine would be open to our own deficiencies to save ourselves and to seek victory in this life. And that because of his power, we would actually learn to have open hands that we would appeal to him, that we would actually embrace his grace and then actually actively adore him. Why? Because of the dramatic, extravagant, and scandalous love and victory that we have in Jesus Christ. And so that's my encouragement to you as we sing the rest of this psalm here in a minute, is that we would know that our boast, our victory, and we can sing it loudly and declare it, comes from the security of his death and resurrection. Let me pray for us. Our Lord and our God, there are so many ways in which we seek confidence in and of ourselves. We don't want to be perceived as weak and powerless. And yet if we are all honest with ourselves, we know, you know, that we are. And so, Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes to see all the different ways in which we twist our own lives and experiences to boast in ourselves, to find confidence and life in and of ourselves. That you would also then open our eyes, though, to the beauty and to the glory of what you have done for us in Christ. That we would boast in you this evening And that our lives would reflect that reality more and more. And so, God, I pray that for each person here as well, that we would have hands out, receiving the goodness of your grace, appealing to you actively, 
and giving you the adoration and the praise that you deserve for the power and the strength of the victory that we have in Jesus. Do this, we pray, for the sake of your people and for your glory. Amen.